Welcome to the Craft of Writing podcast with me, your host, Sam Hall. Hello and welcome back to the Craft of Writing podcast. Today on the show, uh, we've got Tim Sutton. Now, I first met Tim in a in the Potstill pub in Glasgow, um, where we drank quite a few ales and some whiskies and Tim even um, showed us some of his amazing magic uh, which is this was I blew my mind if I'm honest uh, it was uh, and it wasn't just because of the ales or anything it was a genuinely amazing experience and we also had some lovely chats about composing and writing um, so I knew when I started this podcast I'd like to chat to him um, and he's here with me now thank you so much Sam thank you for having me I got something more inside and I don't know how to abide it. It's like the roar of a coming tide and it seems so strong it go bust me wide and I just can't hope we hide it. No, no, no. So Tim, you have quite a, a varied career, uh, which is, you know, wonderful. Um, but can we talk about your journey up to this point? Certainly. Um, I started writing music when I was about 10 years old, started playing piano at eight, learning how to write it down, although I had been picking out tunes, but I started writing it down about the age of 10. And initially they were piano pieces, but um, quickly I moved on to songs as well. We had a song competition at my, uh, my school, my secondary school, which I entered with a friend of mine who wrote the words and I wrote the music. Um, and then the big transformational thing really for me was that I was, um, I was asked to write a musical for our church youth group um, where I, in Nottingham, where I lived, where I was born. Um, and uh, the church youth group had just set up again after a couple of years um, in abeyance, um, we wrote a version of Beauty and the Beast, um, and I sort of appointed myself composer and co-lyricist, and we, 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 we wrote songs for a whole show, which uh, sub- subsequently I entered for a competition called the Vivian Ellis Prize, um, and, and much to my surprise, <laughs> won that in 1990. <laughs> and through that I got to meet lots of very big people, very um, important people in musical theatre, Um, I had a little bit too much responsibility or I put too much uh, responsibility on my shoulders to write the next great British musical, which was by this time I was 16. um, And I don't don't think that was uh, necessarily realistic, but it certainly did instill this huge bug for writing um, for the craft of musical theatre, which has stayed with me till today and I suppose will never leave me. Um, professionally I started out as a musical director um, once I graduated from university where I read music I wrote to a director and composer called Jeremy Sams who just happened to be writing a television score at that moment and he invited me to his, his flat to chat and see if we got on um, and we've remained friends and collaborators from that day, so this is going back to uh, 1996, um, and he asked me to be the musical director for a production of Marassade at the National Theatre in 1997, which I hadn't 
quite even realised at the time was an incredibly uh, big thing to be asked to do. Um, mm. But we've kept in touch and he was the perfect person to, uh, to work with and have my first two jobs with because uh, he's also a musical theatre nut. He works in opera. He translates opera librettos. He worked for the Royal Shakespeare Company when he was first starting out as a composer. And he's also a collaborator of, of Sondheim um, and uh, w was involved in the National Theatre production of Sunday in the Park with George. Uh, with Maria Friedman, um, so he was a a channel to to Sondheim, um, and also we you know somebody who who shared the love of of Sondheim, and we talked a lot about Sondheim's harmony and and Sondheim's lyric practice, which is is a big thing for me uh, and remains remains strong, you know that link, and of course you go through to, through Sondheim, and then you're through the Hammerstein and Richard Rogers, and then <laughs> out into the late 19th century, mm. into the world of opera and operetta. Um, so I've tried to continue that in when I when I teach, when I tutor, um, try to continue that line of, of, of teaching, instruction, bringing bringing new thoughts to to people's minds. And of course, it helps me when I when I teach. It helps me think about my own practice. So, on the subject of teaching, you. You teach at the Book, Music and Lyrics workshop. Um, can we talk a little bit about that? And Yeah, you bet. Yeah, B BML, Book, Music, Lyrics, was founded by David James, I think in 2010. It started with the Librettists workshop. Uh, and then in 2011, there was a Music and Lyrics course added. Although David doesn't like me to call it a course, you don't get a piece of paper at the end. We're not affiliated with any institution. What it is, is a vocational workshop where people who want to get better at writing music and lyrics, whatever their level, come and participate in a 32-week uh, workshop where they're set a number of assignments uh, of increasing challenge. So each assignment is three weeks. Um, a, a composer will be paired with a lyricist and they have to work on the assignment together and then deliver this to the group. Uh, the model is taken from the BMI workshop, um, which has been running for even longer in, um, in in New York, in about thirty years, probably thirty-five years now, which was set up by the you know the fabulous MD Lehman Engel, and many writers have come through that program. You know, um, Lynn Arons and Stephen Flaherty, to name but two, um, as well as my friends um, Chris Miller and Nathan Tyson, um, who do that course. I think also the Tisch school in New York. We don't quite have anything like, like Tish in, in, in Great Britain, um, where you really have a, an intense training in musical theatre writing. So I feel that BML fulfills a very important function in the ecology of musical theatre um, because it allows people to have an experience of collaborating. It's a bit like speed dating or speed dating on steroids, David always calls it. <laughs> And uh, by the end of the year, you will have written a, an AABA song, you'll have written a charm song, a comedy song, a duet, um, you'll have written a musical scene from a, a movie, and fine, finally a 10-minute musical. Um, I started in 2011 teaching with David Furman, the original musical director for, um, for Cats and Jesus Christ Superstar, um, who was wonderful as David moved on to the second year, and then I 
from my second year, I taught with Jason Carr, um, the wonderful Jason Carr, who's a, also a fantastic composer, lyricist, uh, and orchestrator, and the most wonderful pianist, accompanist. Um, so we got to know each other through that. Jason, an another winner of the Vivian Ellis Prize. So there's a real community that start, started out around BML at that time, and then we have writers like Darren Clark, um, Richie Hughes, Luke Bateman. Darren, of course, has opened the uh, a new production of the wonderful Curious Case of Benjamin Button. I, w I went to see it on Wednesday, and um, I just cried <laughs> so much. It was just incredible. It's beautiful, and it? it's an absolute mm. marvel. Um, fully integrated actor-musician show, with beautiful melodies, beautiful orchestrations, a wonderful moving story, um, fantastic performers. And, you know, I've had the privilege of seeing Darren develop from those early days, 2012 this was. He talked to me uh, a couple of weeks ago about having the Zoom call, or it wasn't even Zoom then, whatever it was, Skype. It would have been a uh, Skype call with Jason and me. Um, saw him through that, that first year. Um, and his his writing and his scope has grown extraordinarily uh, over that time. So um, it, it's it's wonderful to see people develop in that way. Um, but also, you know, people are also slightly scared they, 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 of, of coming and, and, and training and learning. And they feel that, like, maybe they'll have their individuality sort of ironed out of them. That, like there's a house style that they've got to conform to. Um, I hope that's not the case, but of course we are giving we are giving guidelines, we are giving examples from the canon. Um, the only rules as such that we ask when people are writing their assignments is that they scan properly and that they rhyme properly, that's all we ask. Um, and it's not to say that after the course people won't go off and do exactly what they want, which is as, as they should do, and if they choose to use perfect rhyme that's great, if they don't that's great as well, but the, the reasons for using perfect rhyme, I think, are, are laid out um, very clearly. Um, so anyway, but um, maybe we'll maybe we'll come back to, uh, to that wormhole a little later. Yes, there's been m much debate about rhymes, but yeah, we'll get to that later. Um, and we should also say that you have uh, a fantastic podcast yourself where you interview um, some of the most amazing world-class composers and lyricists, um, which is called Voice of the Musical. Um, and when, when did you start that? That was 2011. Um, oh wow! Okay, yeah. Weirdly, the same same time as uh, as I started working with BML. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know if that was a coincidence, but um, I'll tell you how how that started. Was um, a magician friend of mine called Pete Wardell had uh, had started a podcast where he was interviewing magicians, specifically about the business side of magic. Um, so it was very had a quite quite a tight focus um, how people approached. The, their careers, how they approach the business of marketing and so on, because he was interested in that side of things as well, not just the uh, how to do tricks. Um, and I think like you, I was sort of looking around at the world of musical theatre podcasts and feeling that quite, you know, there, there were a few, but they tended to be a bit fluffy, um, a bit sort of fan, fan based. Um, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that at all. Um, mm. But I wanted to dig deeper into technique and craft, and it sounds like you've had the same sort of impulse, um, you know, uh, 12 years later, which is fantastic, because I think, um, you know, the more that we can get people talking about specifics, um, not that all these things are known, of course, you know, you talk, I, I 
I heard you talking to Tasha Taylor Johnson about you know about specifics and of course the wonderful thing about any art form it's it's a mixture of the the learned information and the subliminal you know there is a, there is a mystical element however much a, I'd like to sort of say there was a form I wouldn't like to say there was a formula actually mm. because if there was a formula then we would all just um, <laughs> you know them out. yeah we'd type it into our computers like an AI bot and we'd we'd oh, out <laughs> I know and we'd, we'd churn out the next great um, the great, next great piece of musical theatre but I don't think that's going to happen because um, musicals are, f are far too too hard to rely on um, on logic alone there has to be a heart element to it or a or a brain you know a right brain element of um, of reaching for something and in, and in fact I think for my own practice I've learnt more and more to trust the the mystical element the instinctive element and I think what, what happens, particularly as you're writing more and more, is you start to be able to tap into something which bypasses the intellectual conscious processes. I don't believe it, that means that the conscious processes aren't happening. I just believe that it's easier to draw on things without going back to first principles all the time. And I think that's what makes for great art. Um, that there are, there are organizing principles, whether they're um, you know whether they're written out painstakingly or whether they're learnt and absorbed. But then there's a way in which you also, what what Charles Hart called daydreaming. Um, on my on on one of the, my early episodes, you know, I was he was talking about writing lyrics and he sort of said there's an element of daydreaming. And I completely believe that because I think um, for me, most many ideas come when I'm out walking in the sunshine and across fields and when I'm in the shower and uh, when I'm unconconcerned and and under and not under any any pressure you know um, that things will arrive sort of unbidden and, and indeed I have had the experience of dreaming lyrics <laughs> dreaming harmonies dreaming patterns you know so um, so I, I do believe in that those two sides of things being you know equally important we know that um, Paul McCartney dreamt the uh, the melody of uh, yesterday and mm. called it scrambled eggs until he could find a, a lyric that fitted. Um, but the melody was absolutely something that uh, arrived through his unconscious. Mm. So many people trying to change the country. Some a little, some a lot. Black and white, brave and crazy, smart and stupid. Why haven't I got what they got? What I got's a soul that's sinking, shriveling and drinking from the light. How do you come up with the harmonic content for your music? Uh, and also, maybe, how do you use harmony to tell the story? I think there are a number of elements to harmony, and it's something I'm really interested in. I'm uh, in my own work and, and other people's work, and when, when people have... Uh, a harmonic sophistication to their work I, I really lean forward you know and of course when when we discover Sondheim who studied Ravel and studied with um, Milton Babbitt we get a, a sense of a composer who's thinking com in a composerly way you know that he will plan out his his, his harmonies um, I I rarely plan out in a in a sort of Schenkerian uh, sort of long line format but I do 
I do, I do lean towards um, unusual chords, and I think voice leading is at the heart of that. Um, I, I wrote some songs uh, for a production of Mother Courage, which comes out next month in July 2023. Um, and I wanted the harmonies to be basically tonal, but also slightly distorted. And I, I, I and voice leading was really, really helpful just to sort of give a sort of through line. But what I mean by voice leading is, is the tendency of, uh, of one, uh, uh, one line of melody to, to rise and the other to fall. And that those things are often in opposition. You know, we often see melodies rising as bass lines are falling. Um, if you look at the work of Bela Bartok, the Hungarian composer, he almost never writes um, uh, a melody and a harmony and, and a bass line in similar motion. They're always going in opposite directions. And I think that was an important thing because he was such a contrapuntally minded composer. Same with Brahms, who studied Bach. You know, um, it's the it's the tension between the lines which gives us. Um, excitement gives us drama um, and also generates unusual chords but we can follow the chords if the internal lines have their own logic so this is what I'm looking at um, when I spoke to Adam Gettle um, he said the same thing he said that his, his mother Mary Rogers saying you know gave him a sort of critique of one of his early songs I mean, you know because he was basically moving his hands in the same direction so I think from that mm. point for him um, he started really thinking about baseline as a melody, mm. um, and when you do that, immediately your your song starts to to have a muscle, to have a, a sense of of growth and of forward motion about it. Which is not to say that you don't get great drama from a composer called Puccini, who loved to write in block chords, but not not exclusively. You know, um, uh, also uh, if you if you explore new elements in your in your music, if you throw new elements in, often that will create new new. Uh, you might discover new things. For example, again, going back to Mother Courage, I decided that I would use the famous Diazire chant in one of the songs, a sort of seemingly happy chant, but the, ba the bass line suggested this da do da do da do da da. So I thought, well, what happens if I if I just sort of continue that theme because it's a a seemingly jolly song where Mother Courage is setting out her wares and setting out a stall, but she's essentially an arms dealer. She actually sells, um, well, she sells things to to uh, soldiers. She sells stuff to soldiers, um, and the longer the war goes on, the richer she gets. But she starts off the play with three children, and she ends up with no children. They've all been killed. Um, so there's a theme of death that runs through this. Of course, the Diazire, Day of Judgment, Day of Wrath made sense to use that it's 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 something that i don't need people to un to, to know explicitly this is this is a theme which re resonated throughout the the 19th century you know it's used in rachmaninoff's um paganini variations it's used in uh, berlioz it's it's used in um Sanson. i mean so so often and and indeed it's used in sweeney todd um mm. when he gets to the the epiphany um in the middle line there in the horns he has uh, he has the diazire when when sweeney decides that he's going to move from a, a single focus of his uh, of his murderous rage to, to to the whole populace in general and and what that did 
using that as an internal line, it, it immediately threw up new harmonies for me, and it immediately, it was a sort of second pass of a chorus that I used it, and, and the, the harmonies that it threw up are things that I wouldn't have thought about if I was just harmonising on my own. Um, I think harmony is so important in the way that it can carry a narrative, and this is what we're, we're talking about ultimately, is, is the way in which chords, harmony, are able to convey character. They're often able to tell a character or tell an audience something that the character doesn't know. The character might be lying to themselves, like in Buddy's Eyes from Follies. Um, the orchestration, the harmony tells us that actually she doesn't, you know, Sally doesn't, um, is, 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 is trying to tell herself something that's not true. Um, uh, similarly, if you think of Into the Woods, the, the number of ways in, in, that the... The bean theme is harmonised. Sometimes it's sort of very warm and and gentle when it's when it's Jack, uh, you know, in his sort of goofy way. And then it's harmonised completely different for the witch, who actually gives the beans in the first time. It's sort of spiky. It's sort of more minor, but it's with added notes as well. Um, and that sort of compositional process, the reharmonisation of a uh, of a melody is able to tell us different things about different characters, it's able to tell us things about a character's uh, emotional de development throughout the, the score. Um, and I suppose I was lucky to have a, um, a classical training, both through, in, you know, instrumentally through learning, learning piano, um, but also doing a music degree and also being interested in both in jazz, but also in, in uh, particularly early 20th century classical music. Um, the music of Bartok, as I said, but also Stravinsky and Messiaen, where you're using two chords, uh, two keys, three keys at the same time. Um, you know, and those things fire fire my brain. And uh, you know, essentially, I'm not writing atonal music; I'm writing tonal music. But um, those those chords that sh that pull in different directions. Um, I think are very valuable. The big thing for me, sorry, it's a very long answer to your question, but it's a theme <laughs> no, that I'm very it's, it's lovely. obsessed with. <laughs> I mean, the big thing for me, because I, I think I had, I felt, you know, I was writing classical music on one side over here, and then I was writing musical theatre music over here, and, and, and I had, looking back, I had limited myself to a sort of musical theatre harmony, and he says doing air quotes, which can't be heard on a podcast, um, to musical theatre harmony, to sort of tonal music, uh, when I was writing my musical theatre songs. Um, and the big revelation for me was coming across Myths and Hymns, Adam Gettle's song cycle, which blends Greek classical myth with thoughts about Christianity and other faiths. Um, and there he's using a whole tonal palette, and he's using extended harmony, he's using jazz harmony, uh, he's very much leaning into... Um, interesting bass lines and all sorts of unusual melodies and I thought oh yeah you can do that in fact I would why, why don't I do that because I, I, I have the facility um, to do that um, and that really opened things up for me is um, saying what you don't have we don't all have to write in the same way I think ironically that the, the three shows I'm working at the, at the moment uh, for, for different reasons demand not demand but lean into a, a more traditional pop harmony but I think that everything I write has has a, a, a piquance to it because I can't sort of help myself really. Um, but obviously, if you're writing in a in a genre, the 
my musical to the streets is set in 1963 so i'm i'm and it's set it with in the caribbean community in bristol so i'm using uh calypso scar i'm doing rock and roll and of course those things all have um a, a ge generic element of, of harmony of, of orchestration band arrangement and so on which need to be observed in order to be recognized and there, there's a lyrical component to that too of course um but actually i think that those constraints really allow me to be rooted in in story uh, while at the same time uh, leaning into extended harmony when appropriate you know should I believe what they told me? Are there rivers of silver and gold meandering through foreign lands? If so, I'm going to track them, come back to Earl with a stack of fat dollars in my hands. Hey, brother, why so let's talk about uh, the thing that I find the hardest and probably everyone finds the hardest, but maybe is the, to some people the most fun bit, um, lyric writing. Yes, well, it's a it's a huge topic, of course, and it's it's not possible to kind of cover um, the whole the whole <laughs> thing in um, well. Uh, I don't think it's ever possible to cover the whole thing. Um, I think the thing about lyrics is, of course, words are there for us in language. Um, we speak words every day, um, and I think that belies how very very exacting and and very difficult the craft of lyric writing actually is um, there are many components to that one is about coming up with an idea for a song if we're talking about a musical theater song or even a pop song an idea for a song which is sufficiently both universal but also specific um, that it doesn't feel hackneyed, but it also is clear and communicable. And I think with musical theatre, the, the, the need to communicate an idea is is key. Um, this isn't necessarily true for, for a pop song. If you sort of think of, um, I mean, the Bewley Brothers from David Bowie, for example. You know, some of the some of his lyrics are are almost indecipherable. They're like little little poems. Um, that that sort of have have meaning in in a poetic sense they can be unpacked and interpreted by the listener and it doesn't matter if two people come up with completely different interpretations of a, of a bowie lyric or a dylan lyric um but it's not the same deal um in musicals because ultimately the, there's a story structure that has to carry throughout the the whole thing and that has to rule um the 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 product um if i can call it product um the the the, the, the piece um and the song is a function of that larger structure we need to know why uh well first of all we need to decide whether the moment this moment in the the drama is sufficiently important for a character to to sing it or characters um If once we do, we have to kind of come up with a, a, an idea for the song which carries that in the most eloquent um, and compelling and clear way 
that we can, both using lyric and, and music and often choreography to, to tell that story. Um, part of the idea of the idea, <laughs> the idea of the idea of the song, um, is often a hook. You know, what is the, the, the lyric phrase which best conveys that notion? Um, so if, if, I don't know, taking an example at random, if, say, my friends from Sweeney Todd, uh, the idea of that song, I suppose, is Sweeney singing a love song to his raiser. My friends, sorry, my, my friends. Um, the, yeah, no, these are my friends. Yeah, um, he's mm. talking to his raisers, his, his collection of raisers. These are my friends. Um, and we understand in that moment, I think, that Sweeney, Sweeney's love for his raisers surpasses that, for, certainly for Mrs. Lovett, who remains in a state of... Um, of, of delusion about what Sweeney feels about her, I think, to, you know, almost to the end of the play when she, until the horrible realisation dawns upon her just before her grisly end. So the idea of the song, a love song to a, a, a murder weapon, essentially. Um, how that idea is encapsulated is in a hook. The hook is my friends. Um, you know, and, it, and indeed thinking it through, these are my friends. And she sings, I'm your friend too, Mr. Todd. If you only knew, Mr. Todd. So that duality of this, this tragedy of, 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 a, of a woman who is desperate to be loved by a man who is never going to love her is just simply using her as a, as a part of his, his terrible mechanism. Um, that's a very compelling piece uh, of, of theatre a love song not to a person but to a, 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 a terrible object um, and then the song can unpack from there but you have to have those elements in in place you have to have a hook that's sufficiently powerful and uh, that you that it can you can hang the rest of the song on it um, if you don't it's very hard to to generate a, a song lyric I find and if on the other hand, if, if you do find a hook that works, um, then uh, it can often generate very easily a, a song lyric because you have uh, you have found the, the key that unlocks the song. Um, and very often, well not very often, but sometimes um, a hook will arrive that you don't even un you don't even understand what it means. It has to be unpacked. There's a song of mine which I, I haven't sent you, but I'll, I'll send it to you for your, for, for your amusement. Um, oh yes, it's, yes. So I, I, I entered this for the um, Stars and True. I think it, 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 I think I won the Stars and True with this song um, about ten years ago. It's a song called "That Once in a Lifetime Feeling," um, and that phrase just arrived in my head. That once in a, love, a lifetime feeling. I didn't know what it meant, um, but I thought, well, that's interesting. And so for me, it was a detective process of unpacking what, what it meant for that song. Of course, if somebody else had thought that phrase, they, they, they would write a completely different song or not write it at all. Um, but the, 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 the kind of detective work that I had to do, uncovering a, <laughs> a crime that actually hadn't been committed because it was all in my head, in, in uncovering a plot um, that made sense for that lyric, almost reverse engineering a song, was actually what made the song so strong. And in fact, there were even a couple of different stages of that it sort of worked out in one structure and then I played the song to people and they go well that's great up until this point but but, but then I don't believe it anymore so I had to reverse engineer well not reverse engineer I had to rethink the structure um, and once I'd solved the last bit of it 
it all kind of came together and becomes a song which I think is quite unusual in that it ha is a song, a self-contained song which has a twist. So it's a comedy song which doesn't seem like a comedy song at the beginning until uh, the, 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 until the, the, the as a magician called David Williamson says that you turn the hose on them. Um, and that's a very satisfying <laughs> thing. Um, so that's, that's the, 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 that's the hook. And then of course you've got the components of what makes a good lyric, um, often, which is brevity, you know, how, how do you construct lines, which are, for example, for a ballad, which are short enough that you can carry a melody that a melody is allowed to unfold because a, 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 the melody of a ballad doesn't need to have too many notes and therefore it doesn't need to have too many syllables. So lyric lines for a ballad often work best when they're short but that means compressing language you know um isn't it bliss are we a pair you know four syllables per line for each of the first lines of those two a sections that's quite hard to do because you have to convey meaning and if if say if i take a took a um a thought like you know um my my headphones are in need of replacement how would i convey that thought in four syllables um, I mean headphones takes up two syllables for a start so headphones are bust sure but it doesn't <laughs> I was just thinking that yeah <laughs> but, but it's not English you see, because in my my headphones um, in fact headphones doesn't really f if we're taking that um, rhythmic structure of sending the clowns ya -da -dee -dee, it requires a, a, a sort of strong syllable on the first and fourth uh, uh, of each of those lines, so it would have to be headphones because headphones. Mm. It, uh, it could be da da headphones. It could be mm. do headphones do. So you could do my headphones stink. Okay, that's that. That's the only place <laughs> headphones can really go in that because of what they require uh, in terms of language. So we have to, as lyricists to be really alive to how language is stressed. You know the natural stress of of a, of, a, of a sentence if I say my headphone no my I can't do my, my headphone yeah my, my headphones stink but even then I wouldn't be happy with it with that melody my headphones stink because the phone syllable is higher than the head syllable headphones um, and it's not head headphones it's headphones so it works rhythmically but it doesn't work melodically um, and these are the things that we we start to think about when we're particularly when we're writing a second verse or a second chorus and we've put put our rhythmic structure in place we're then obliged to to do the same thing uh to, to replicate that that lyric structure and it becomes it becomes a little bit like a a crossword puzzle uh it becomes a an intellectual exercise as well as a creative exercise or, or rather a, a craft exercise um because I, I i love as a composer to receive a lyric where the each verse matches I think it's 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 useful because a it means that the melody will remain true. You don't have to add or subtract. Not to say that that can't be done to to a certain degree, but I think um, on on the moment for the main, especially with ballads, if you have a tune, the tune is the tune, and that's why you know Tasha was talking about. Well, you know, you were talking about working for 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 Angelo Weber. Um, that I because I think his melodies are his sort of greatest gift. He wants them, and, and off he, he will take them from show to show. You know, mm. if if you listen to Tim Rice's podcast, you'll often hear pop songs that they wrote when they were just met that then got uh, new lyrics and made it into a show, or 
you know, there's um, mm. a song from the Bernardos, their first show that they tried to write, which became da da from the um, variations he wrote for his brother, um, the Paganini variations. So for him, melodies are, are, are sacrosanct, and that's why um, he does he he he's, he wants to give a melody melody to lyricists that you sort it out. But I I rarely rarely work that way. I mean, occasionally I've got a melody which I need to to uh, to sync to a lyric because I think the melody is so strong. But I'm I'm not as gifted as Andrew Lloyd Webber in the melodic department. I don't have these sort of jewels that I think okay that has to be the thing. Um, I'm much more likely to make accommodation if, if necessary. But I do think that sticking to a pattern is really valuable. Um, I mean, the one melody of the songs that I, um, I've i sent you, um, the song called Johnny, um, where that tune... Johnny, da -da. shall we take a trip to Africa tonight? I think is a really beautiful melody. And, and I came up with that lyric after the melody but then again, I, I didn't know what to do with it. I didn't know what it meant. So that, just that phrase, I think, stayed in my drawer probably for about 10 years. Um, in fact, I think I, under, I, think I, I had an idea for what the, the song would be about. But actually, it was quite a dark subject or it was quite a tragic subject. And I wasn't brave enough to tackle it uh, at, at that time. So I literally put it away for 10 years and then in the pandemic I thought no you know what I've got to finish that song because nobody else will um, and then it was a really beautiful process of, of saying well how can I tell a story which could be maudlin but I want to kind of stay on the right side of that I want to tell a song which would and, and indeed you know it makes people cry but um, um, uh, but but of course it doesn't make everybody cry some people say well I'm not, I'm not interested in going down that and that's fine, you know. Um, but again, because it's a, it's a like once in a lifetime feeling. It's a bit of a mystery. We don't quite know what's going on until the end, which is why it's more of a cabaret song than a, than a song which you'd see on stage. Because you saw it on stage, you'd know what was going on. It works much better in audio form or in cabaret form, and that's an interesting component to things as well. Um, in theatre, we don't want to tell people things that are on stage already because they go, "Well, why are you telling me that?" You know. Yeah. The, this red dress is so, you know, I, I can see you've got a red dress because I'm, I'm in a theater watching you on stage, you know, so, <laughs> so why give us that information? Um, it's, it's uh, particularly when I think that those, those syllables and those words that sit on the melody, I think of them as expensive real estate. You know, it, it, each one of them, each word that you use is, is taking up a place that a better phrase could you could, could, um, could replace, you know, so, so it's really incumbent on us to keep working on our rhyme structure, which I, I haven't even talked about rhyme yet, which is un unlike me. <laughs> but, you know, work on our rhyme structure, keep working for, you know, whether you rhyme perfectly or imperfectly, keep working on um, getting the best rhyme that you possibly can, the best phrase that you can. Um, and if you look at Sondheim, if you look at something like The Miller's Son, which I, I've done a, a kind of lyrical analysis on that so song, it's unbelievable how how tightly worked out that lyric is um and yet it seems to be the most airy breezy frivolous wonderful sort of sensuous piece of uh, of, uh, of of a lyric for a, for a sort of very minor character in the show but the um the way in which the rhymes the external the internal rhymes work there's even a a rhyme which goes throughout the 
well, it's not a rhyme really, it's an identity, but it goes throughout the choruses. There's a, the trip the light fantastic, and then we'll do the fandango, and then we'll trip the highland fancy. So for some reason, the, 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 the syllable fan is in all three of those at the same point. No need for it. Um, but it's there because it gave him the structure that he needed to generate the, the lyric. Um, yeah, so maybe I won't even, won't even talk about perfect rhyme right now. You can read, yeah, you can read it in the Sondheim book. <laughs> you can read all, all, all my thoughts on, on rhyme are basically laid out by, by Sondheim in uh, Look Up and uh, Finishing the Hat. Um, mm. And I don't want to kind of re retread. I, for, my, for my practice, I always use perfect rhyme um, because I think when I hear sort of rhymes which feel really, really loose, it feels like the building hasn't been properly made. It feels like, um, you know, the, the, the bricks are sort of on skew whiff or that the, the, the plaster is crumbling. You know, it, it literally doesn't feel like a song. And I think the only person that really um, has found a way of, of, of using imperfect rhyme um, is Tim Minchin. You know, I think that he, he um, because he's doing so much else with his lyric and he's, it, it, it's, it, it's more a sort of hip-hop construction that he uses, you know, because he's rhyming the middle of words or he's sort of riffing on the middle of words and the beginning of words um, uh, in, in Matilda uh, and Groundhog Day. Um, yeah. But even then, I think you can always be, you can always be better. Because I think people, you say people who, who, don't, who use imperfect rhyme, they, they will use perfect rhyme where they can, and then they will root, use imperfect rhyme the rest of the time. Well, so well, so you, you, you recognise, I said I wouldn't talk about it, but there you go. You know, <laughs> um, you use perfect rhyme this time, but so therefore you recognise perfect rhyme. So therefore, why have you gone to imperfect rhyme? And it's, it's usually not because it's the best possible phrase. It's usually because they haven't, they've stopped, They've stopped looking too soon. That's that's my uh, the my other my other thought, and I think um, I do feel this as objectively as I can is that comedy songs are funnier, objectively funnier, and I've tried to, to test this by listening to laughter. They're funnier when the rhyme is correct, it, and I say correct. Correct. All these terms aren't ethical terms. They're simply terms way of describing the craft of of, of a word. So, cat rhymes with bat, and nation rhymes with confabulation. But um, but not with um, Cajun, as in Cajun chick Cajun chicken. Mm. Um, sure. I I think that a, a joke in a song lands more firmly and funnier uh, when it when the rhyme is perfect. I think the sense of a full stop on a, on a joke and and you know that for me that's enough reason because I love to write <laughs> I love to write comedy songs. You know I do a lot of that stuff for for the Now Show and for Alexi Sale and so on. Or I'll snatch you up and hide away Or we'll sit upon the rocks And chase the tide away Turn the tide There must be something They haven't tried Oh, Johnny We're drifting down the Amazon tonight Where a thousand dangers so briefly sort of spoke about melody alongside the lyrics in that last little chat but um let's let's go a bit deeper into melody writing do you have any theories melody is a it's a it's a tricky one because there are there are theories um 
I think that important words tend to uh, tend to sit better and be more pronounced when they're on a high melodic point. Um, but there are there are exceptions to that. There are all. Um, I think the gift of melody is something that is given to, you know, to few. Um, and for the rest of us, it's about finding our way to, you know, the best tune. I think that, that as, as mentioned, Lloyd Webber is somebody who, who has a, has a gift for melody. I think, you know, Mozart, Schubert, um, and, and not, not Beethoven, weirdly. Beethoven, um, had the gift of construction, really. He, he was able to write, mm tunes and harmonies which seemed absolutely inevitable um, and it's not not to say that he Beethoven never wrote any great melodies um, I think certain composers aren't are less interested in in, in melody um, certainly kind of if you think of ballad melody through long line um, I guess someone like David Yazbek his he, he tends to write kind of very pop infused melodies which are less suited to kind of ballad um, but m more about a, a kind of pop energy uh, and it's fantastic and I, lo I, I love his stuff um, but I think um, melodies tend to work in the same way as any any structure they tend to rise towards a peak and then fall off just to before the end um, so yesterday, yeah, all my troubles seem so far away. For example, um, just pl literally plucking an idea, uh, uh, an example out of the air. Um, there, there, there seems there seem to be these rules that whether they're golden section or however you think about it, where art, te you know, uh, whether it's the, a line of a painting or a structure of a building. They don't just go from the bottom to the top and stop. They tend to, to, to build through the first two thirds and then drop away. Um, but I don't think that necessarily helps one when we're when writing a melody. I think if you're if you're writing a melody and you've given a lyric, being given a lyric by somebody else, or you've generated your lyrics first, like John Bacchino does. You know, he said he he finds lyric writing the hardest thing and the real painful part. So he writes all of a lyric before even starts to set it um, and then for him writing the tune is the uh, is the is the payoff is the is the is the sort of chocolate cake at the end of the um the marathon or whatever i don't know if that's a useful me metaphor weird metaphor. um <laughs> you probably shouldn't eat chocolate cake after a marathon uh, i don't know maybe you should um yeah, do what you like yeah exactly um <laughs> exactly nobody can possibly uh gain say uh, ethically at that point um but um but if you're given a lyric, um, I think you should, the first thing that you should do as a composer is to set the lyric so that the words are, um, so that the, 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 the rhythm of the words are correctly reflected by the melody. So in other words, if you have a word like guitar, for example, he says, looking at the first thing that's in front of him in the studio, um, the word guitar is a two syllable word and the strongest syllable is the final syllable. Which means that guitar rhymes with car, and but not quite with caviar. Although people often go caviar in order to make those accommodations, and most lyricists at some point or composers find that uh, they they make those, that slight fudge, you know, even even sometimes. Huh. Uh, ex not exclusively is is what he does in um, uh, "Marry Me a Little." Um, very rarely, though. Um, 
so yeah we should we should set lyrics uh, in the way that they're spoken um, and I think there's a there's a, a literal danger that if we don't do that it's not only that it'll feel a bit funny but in the moment with a song that an audience hasn't heard before there is a real danger if you set a, a, a lyric incorrectly that it won't be understood I've had that many times in pop songs in in being in a theatre going what was that word what was that word I, I, I didn't um, I, I, I didn't understand what was being said because you've heard it for the first time and you have all this other information coming at you so so melodies should reflect lyrics um, uh, and the uh, you know if you want to make the, the melody rise um, as the lyric rises you, you can do but, the, the, but rhythmically the melody should re reflect the spoken rhythm um, but yes I, I, there, there's definitely a mystical element of what you know how we use these seven notes to to create you know beautiful things that haven't heard been heard before despite these seven notes being available to us you know for the past six thousand years or or, hmm. or if you like since the dawn of time um how you know what what makes uh, one composer a melodist and another not um I mean, I think there are probably organising principles, but they're usually ones that we look back at. Um, I mean, if I think of that melody that I mentioned earlier, da -di, da -da -da -di, da -da -di, da 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 da, it does have that same shape. Um, I didn't, I didn't did design it that way, and it also has an asymmetricality about it. It has a, a, an additive nature, so it starts off with two notes, da da. And then da 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 da, I suppose, which is an answering phrase, do da, ya da da dee dee. So it has a small um, jump of a of a third of a minor third, da dee, and then down, ya da da, and then a big jump, da da da, of a fifth, da dee da da. So it climbs up another third. So you've got a little third at the bottom, a fifth, and then a big big uh, third at the end, and then it falls off. So it doesn't go da 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 dee dee. It doesn't stop on that note, but dee da 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 da. It has a sort of fall or release, I suppose you could call it. Um, uh, and the way I set that was Johnny. So it, it sort of immediately suggested a two-syllable name. If if a it's a character singing to another character, Johnny, shall we tra take a trip to Africa tonight? And I suppose Africa is the most important word after Johnny. Johnny leads, so we all know what who we're talking to. And then Africa is the most interesting and important word in that um in that melody, um, I think. I, I mean, you can look at composers who did construct their melodies. I think quite consciously, like Cole Porter, and he's often doing that thing of sort of starting with small intervals and opening out. So strange, dear, but true, dear. When I'm close to you, dear. So he has he has a sort of small interval which is repeated of a minor second, the smallest interval, ya da 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 da, and then he straight away opens it out to the fifth, da da di, and then he interlocks another fifth, da da di, and then the rest of the chorus, he he adds another interval, da da di da da. First it's a minor third. The second time we hear that phrase, da da di da da, it's a fourth, and then da da di da da at the end of the chorus. So actually he's he's sort of if you think of this is a melody. This is so in love for those of you who uh, who are not Cole Porter fans or don't recognise that. You could sort of say that melody is about the opening out. That you know, sort of saying, it's a, it's a melody about intervals. <laughs> you know, we're starting with a minor second. Where is this going to go? It's going to go to a fifth, and then it's going to go to another fifth. But then it's going to tease out that final fifth. To um, and that that feels like a kind of quite um, 
you know, intellectual way of, of, of making a melody, but it does make a brilliant melody. But I think very often composers who are intuitive write melodies just because they're just, they're just trying to find it. You know, they're trying to find it on a guitar or a piano. Um, and that's part of the process whereby these things are just, you know, and if you look at um, Paul McCartney in the studio on the, on the Get Back film, you just, you, see, you just see him chiseling away for days and days and days at, at Get Back until he's got the song. You know, it's not something that he that is available to him immediately. There's a, there's an idea there, but it just has to be ground out. And very often, if you're just ground, grinding it out, you're, you're you're making those selections. You're deleting I, ideas that aren't quite right, and you're just going again. You're going again, um, and that's what Beethoven did. Whereas it seems as though someone like Schubert, who you know, exact contemporary, was born a little bit later, but died just a year later. Um, completely different sort of source Tchaikovsky as well um the, the the melodies just seem to have this timeless universal um nature to them yeah boy <laughs> seems very far away seems very far away when I think of Jamaica brother it seems very far away So when you finished your first draft of a song um do you how do you present that? Do you do you present it as a an, a recording, a demo? Do you like to orchestrate, or do you always work with other orchestrators? Dep it depends. Um, often, if it's a pop song, um, I quite like to work up a a demo in the studio because so much of the information is about the arrangement, is about the the beat, um, uh, is about the you know the guitar sound of the or the keyboard sound or the synth mm. sound or whatever um the production you know um for the mother courage songs that i was doing last week i was i was deliberately recording them on the you know on the piano just just on an iphone i thought no I, i'm i don't really have time to work out up these songs um and because the, the, the deadline was quite short you know i sort of fought for four weeks once i got the go ahead so it was literally do the lyrics Week one, week two, it's going to be piano uh, vocal scores. Week three, arrangements, and then any tidying up that needs to happen, in the, and, and then recording. Um, so I do do my own orchestration. I, I sort of dr I sort of dream of the day when um, I won't have to do that. It's not that I do have to do that. I think there's. I think there are different elements. I think one is that I've always done it, so I'm a little bit scared of letting other people do it. Um, another is the budgetary elements. Um, not all productions have the ability to hire a, an orchestrator, and there's probably a little bit of, of, of just sort of going. Well, I, I kind of can do it. I, you know, um, I kind of. I'm not. I don't consider myself a kind of master orchestrator like someone like Jason um, but I you know I have books on it I've played in orchestras and I I know how instruments are, are grouped so it's something that I can do 
Um, mm. That said, I, I, I think that the shows that I'm working at at the moment, well, certainly two of the shows that I'm working at at the moment, I mean, one of them is a rock musical, which is going to be happening next year in uh, on a Scottish tour. And I think because the pop sound is so important, I will at, at least co-orchestrate that one. I mean, I have I have done a four-piece arrangement. I think it's going to be five-piece for the show. But I think there is there is a point at which I go, I need somebody to come in and, and you know, just, just so particularly guitar stuff. You know, very often I'm, I'll have an idea, but I'm, I'm also writing chords, I'm sort of saying. Sometimes I'm very specific, like in um, the beginning of the song seems far, very far away, which is a calypso. You know, I really wanted it to have that feel. And the amazing Phil Ward last year when we did the, uh, the, um, the concert production in Birmingham, he worked out a way of doing that, but he worked it out with a with a capo and and, and found these these new ways of which I would just simply not 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 have any clue as to how a guitarist makes these things work. You know, going into drop tunings and um, capos and effects. Uh, you know, it's such a personal thing. It's what Mancini says in his in his book of orchestration. Um, you know, he's very specific on every instrument until he gets to the guitar and he just says, let the guy do it. He knows better than you, <laughs> basically. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so, uh, um, but of course, I mean, it, orchestration is hugely fun. Um, it can, it's, it's quite, obviously it's quite time consuming. It's quite technical, but, um, the, the sort of feedback, the kind of emotional an acoustic feedback you get when you hear an orchestration for the first time is very wonderful. Like he hearing that song in the Zitz Probe last year was a very emotional moment for me when, when I heard the chorus coming in and the, the, the backing vocals of the, for the first time in that little break in the middle of it. Um, similarly, last week when I, I, I put these orchestrations together for the Mother Courage songs and it was a sort of cabaret band. It was Ian Watson on the accordion and we had Fred Freddie Gavita on trumpet um, Beth Heim Edwards on percussion, who I've worked with a lot. Sophie um, Kreener, who was on the Bake Off musical, fantastic multi reed um, instrument. And then the amazing Justin Quinn on, on guitars, you know. So oh, great. just yeah. being able, and then I was leading from piano and just having a, a band who, I, who were meeting together for the first time and, and, and playing through these charts. It's just so wonderful because <laughs> mm. they can <laughs> sit down and they can read anything and they can follow a, a beat. Um, so there is a kind of grat gratification, sensory gratification element to it as well. But yeah, one one day I'll I'll be, I'll be so uh, I'll be so rich and I'll be working for. Well, mind you, I I am working for um, some some very good producers who uh, who will who will absolutely you say you know I I I can't possibly you know finish this this orchestration. I need help. Um, yeah, it's a it's a funny one that. But the, you know the craft of orchestration is such a beautiful and technical thing, and I, I'm part of a Facebook group, music theatre or orchestration, which Larry Blank um, set up. Oh. And you know you have people like Jason Robert Brown is sort of popping on and posting, <laughs> posting a PDF of the original orchestrations of Old Red Hills of Home just for, for, for free because um, Don because oh, wow. Don Sebesky passed away uh, a month or two ago, so Jason just gave this for free to the community. So it's. Um, you know, people talking, you know, people with amazing memories about how what happened in the 1942 production of blah 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 and how the pajama game and oh, this was the on track, but it was used as the overture for this for the original cast recording. And uh, oh, yes, I did the um, 
guy called Nick Arch said, yeah, yeah, no, I, I did this accordion part for the uh, original production of The Birdcage, you know. Um, and it's a wonderful thing about, and then also reading the books about the making of musicals. I'm writing, I'm reading the um, uh, Ted Chapin's book about Follies and the first production of Follies and, uh, you know, how there was always a, d a desire that they would make really properly integrated bowels music um, to reflect each character but they just ran out of time you know they just ran out of time even in a production as well supported as uh, as follies with a product produced like how print sometimes you just run out of time sometimes you just have to cut and paste and take something from here and put it in there so it is it's a it's a craft which is a deeply technical uh, and requires a kind of vast wells of knowledge but is also very practical because you're there you know you do remember the story of bernstein's orchestra's west side story just just in the you know with a with a just with pieces of paper spread all over the um, you know ramen and and so on um throwing them at, at, at the copyist and getting on the direction just working through the night to get to the uh to the zits probe um so, so yeah <laughs> i love all that stuff cool for a classroom cumulus girl of skull and steam too smart for a sunday breezes beguile you while you Too swift for a sunbeam Too still for a prayer Too light for a daydream Shun, siren of sky Princess of earth And f the final sort of bitchy question which is, um, and we can keep this brief if you want to, um, is, is what don't you like about new writing? And we talked about sort of rhyme and lyrical things that you don't like, misstressing and things, uh, but is there anything else that you um, that really upsets you? <laughs> um, I mean, there, there, are things, there are things that bother me, obviously, and probably you'll, you'll, you'll be able to infer what those are from what I've said already about what I like. And I think, I think these days I sort of prefer to sort of talk about my own practice and what I, what I really enjoy doing because I think that I think everybody has their own journey everybody has their own tastes um, and if everybody agreed it would be a very dull world um, so I'll you know to talk about what I what I really enjoy um, let's take three things one is a really interesting and unusual idea for a song where you can tell that the creative team has really worked at something delivering an idea um for a song which you know is is completely left field i think there's a bunch of those in matilda you know i think quiet is a really unusual although it's not particularly dramatic in terms of the the plot but it's very very dramatic in terms of what's going on in in that character's head you know it's, it, and it takes in his his interest in science and the universe and the religion and, and all, all those things so so a really great idea is uh, is fantastic um i mean i can say I, I certainly don't enjoy things which feel cynical um uh i where, where where things have been thrown up without i mean somebody i, I met somebody um who said oh i'm gonna i'm gonna write a, a musical about elvis um, and it's gonna make a load of money which is great because i don't really like musicals and I thought, well, that's you're not gonna write it because if you don't have the passion for it i mean a you're not gonna get the rights to use the the name and or the music and mm. b your 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 lack of passion is going to scupper you and, and, and as well it should if you don't 
because musicals are so hard to put up um i mean very often very good people have bad ideas for musicals and and the you know they, they spend five six seven years of their life 10 years 15 years trying to get a show on which at, at its heart has a bad idea um and that's and you you and of course people say oh what about cats nobody thought cats was going to be a, a, a success mm. but cats had so much going for it uh, in terms of its writers and its performers um and indeed its backer um not everybody is in that position so you do have to take a i think a you you have to pre protect your own creative vision, but you also have to be aware of the things that people enjoy about musicals. Um, and a big part of that is investing in a a lead character, going on a journey with a a strong character with a strong want, like Oliver, like Annie, like Sweeney, like Matilda. Although they, they that that was tricky because Matilda in the book is quite a passive character, but she's likable. She's warm and she's likable, and we sort of sense that she's got a agency within the, the way that that show was conceived i would you know one of the books that we recommend is the secret life of the american musical by um jack vertel which sort of groups these sort of ideas that great musicals seem to have in common these sort of sorts of things that musicals tend to do and they put a big song here and they put a cliffhanger here and they put a and so on and so on um so that would be two and the yeah i suppose the third thing would be the thing, thing that I really like, I mean, it, and it's it's connected with the idea of the song, is um, is a song which really takes you on a journey and doesn't flatline. I often think about flatlining. I've I've done it myself. Often you think you have a great idea, but actually you haven't quite found the way in which the final stage is going to take us to a a new place or turn a corner or be a, a real resolution. Um, so you end up mm. sort of coasting. And 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 as a as a listener, you just go, okay. Well, I just, I just, I, just, I, I I'm not not enjoying this, but I just don't have a sense that the ending is going to be satisfying. And I, and ultimately, that sort of thing is really important to so so that the audience knows what the song is about and when to when to clap, when to say, yeah, that's great. I really enjoyed that. That song deserved to be there. I mean, there, are, there there's a there there are many more there are many more things. Yeah, and and I mean, I mean, the last thing is definitely that good rhyme, and it's not just perfect rhyme; it's also inventive rhyme, and it's rhyme which where where the the rhymes are in the right place. Um, and of course, you get someone like Dave Malloy, who I really in, enjoy. Mm. You know, I really like what he's doing, and he's not, he, he barely uses rhyme at all. You know, um, he, he's you know, which I which I which I'd much rather somebody ditched it all together and just took you on a journey than, than also very often people who use perfect rhymes is the sort of at the expense of the content so you know you get that full stop but there's there's you know there's no point in the in the song to be in it um anyway that's probably all i'll all i'll say about <laughs> about that Amazing. but um yeah i i think the only thing that you can control control ultimately is your own work um, so getting bent out of shape about uh, things you don't like in other people's writing is probably A, um, not very generous and B, uh, entirely pointless, <laughs> you know. I mean, I think the thing you can do is just um, try, try and write things which set, set a bar to say this is, this is what I value in my own writing and also, you know, encourage people to, to, sh to share work and to, to be open to 
constructive feedback, you know, um, to, to have mentors, to have friends that they trust, not to say, no, this is my, this is my art and it's not changing. I mean, I think the amount of times, um, I mean, I, I very much, I try to write quickly and I try to sort of tap into that unconscious realm as it were them as much as i can write asymmetrically not make things regularly sort of you know find a melody that hasn't been found before but then i go back and i and i work out the bits that don't quite work and i go back and i work out the bits and then i, and then I play it to friends like like jeremy um and i get his thoughts and then i i go again um, so there's no there's no end point to to, to that journey Really, I mean, in, in theory, sometime was always, you know, at the end of his life saying, "There's, I never got, I never fixed that line." If somebody's got a better line, I'll, I'd love to hear, hear it, you know. So if he he can feel that, I think I think we can, we we all can. Well, fantastic. Well, Tim, I could I could literally listen to you talk about musicals all day, but um, I have to. <laughs> I won't put go, you through that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but thank you so much it's been so so lovely to talk um, and um, everyone should go and check out Tim's podcast uh, Voice of the Musical uh, it's absolutely excellent um, and, and something that I, I didn't even know was around before I even started this podcast maybe I wouldn't have even started this podcast had I, had I known about yours to be honest but, um, I'm very glad, I'm glad you, I did because, yeah I'm very glad you did because you're talking to, to, to new writers as well and some, some of the, the BML you know ex-students ex mm. as well and people are coming up in there and their early days. I mean, I was I started with people that you know, like like Charles Strauss and, and like Adam Gettle, because I wanted to go. Okay, I'm going to go go to, uh, you know, and it tends to be American writers. Um, and I'm sure you, I'm sure you will too. But I think, uh, you know, the more the more conversations, the merrier. But I ha we also have to say that I'm very I've been very intermittent with my uh, with my podcasting. So, you know, so there are a couple of three year gaps um, in the <laughs> in the in the output. So. I can't say. Well, I'm I'm uh, I'm absolutely keeping people updated with monthly uh, monthly content. Um, so sure. yeah, the more the more but, the more the merrier. But nonetheless, go and go and check out Tim's podcast. It is brilliant. Um, and uh, and yes, so thank you very much, Tim. And um, yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing some of your work on stage very soon. Next thing is Restless Natives, the tour, uh, which is starting in Scotland. Dates hopefully to be announced presently. Thank you.